It's good to see you all here this Sunday morning. We've been singing this morning about the cross of Christ, about His sacrifice, of our need for Jesus, and of His atonement. And that is exactly what we've been talking about, what we will be talking about today, the cross of Christ, how this cleanses consciences, His sacrifice. We're in a season right now where we're preaching through something called the lectionary. The lectionary is a basic, it's basically a set, assigned readings for every Sunday from now until eternity. They've got Sunday's scripture passages assigned for Sundays going into like 3025 uh, when you look on some websites. But it goes on and on. Every Sunday has a set reading. And today's assigned reading is Hebrews chapter 9, which talks about what we've just sung the atonement of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, and how this frees us, how we can stand before Him with a clean conscience. And so, as we go through this assigned verse today, we join with the church around the world, many churches today, um, reading and talking about this same passage, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 to 14. By the way, we will continue to preach through the lectionary right through to Christmas. And so this will take us up to Christmas. Um, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 to 14. If we could read this passage together, that would be wonderful. In a loud voice, you'll find it behind me and also in your bulletin. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Last week also, the assigned verse came from Hebrews. I believe it was one chapter back. And Hebrews is a book that juxtaposes two things. On the one hand, religion. On the other hand, Jesus Christ. And what the author of Hebrews does is he goes through all of the conventions of religion, the Sabbath, the sacrifice, the temple, the priest, etc., etc. And what he does is he says, Jesus is the better sacrifice. Jesus is the better temple. Jesus is a better priest. Jesus is better. If you could summarize the entire book of Hebrews in one word, I think it would simply be better. Jesus is better. I think that's quite accurate. And so last week we talked about this juxtapositioning, this, on the one hand, the inadequacy of religion. Religion is not adequate. And any of you who've grown up religious and maybe you've had some more um, ritualistic religious backgrounds and you kind of just went through the motions. Does this do anything? It's meaningless. Does it mean anything? And then on the other hand, you have the perfect adequacy of Christ. And so we have religion. And just give me Jesus on the other hand. It seems to be what he's saying. Today we're going to talk about the same thing. On the one hand, and this is the two headings in your bulletin, the inadequacy of worship. This is worship. This is Christian worship. It's a little different. It's a little different from the way that people worship throughout the centuries. But it's worship. 
But it's not perfect. It's not perfect. The inadequacy of worship on the one hand, and on the other hand, the perfection of worship. And so that's the, the juxtapositioning there that we're going to talk about today. And to kind of set the stage, I'll tell you another story. Um, a few weeks back, I shared about my so- the, the accident I had playing softball where a line drive, hard line drive, bounced and crushed my, my tripod fracture over here. I had surgery, went to the hospital. Um, actually, I didn't grow up playing softball. I grew up playing stickball in the streets of New York. And I wasn't very good at that either. <laughs> Um, and I think stickball ruined me because the thing about stickball growing up in the streets of New York is, uh, you know, you had a pitch, you had, you had the strike zone, which was a chalk outline square on a concrete wall. And then for the bats, it was broom handles. So very thin bats. And then for the balls, they had either tennis balls. And if they really wanted to make it difficult, those small blue rubber balls, you know what I'm talking about? The blue rubber ones that are even smaller. You had to have perfect eye-hand coordination to hit that thing, I'm telling you. And only the most athletic among us could really make contact. And when they did, they'd whack it out of the park. So I'd step up to bat, and I wanted to be like that cool kid that could hit the ball all the way. Those blue balls, if you hit them well, they'll go far. And I imagine I saw the ball going out, clearing the yard fence, and so I swung so hard. It was like, Two strikes, if you know what I mean. You swing around, and I would swing so, so hard, and, it, and I just couldn't make contact with the ball. And I found myself so frustrated that day in my life that I, was, I began to, um, every time I was up to bat, I was like, God, please let me hit it. And I, Darn you, God, why did you do <laughs> I really want to just hit this ball and swing, strike two. God, why are you... And then finally, I'd strike out, and at that point, I was like flipping, you know, um, uh, four-letter words, and you know, I was, a, I was a kid, bad kid that grew up in the streets of New York, and I, I really was upset at God, and I, and I was saying these things in my head, and then I was walking home that day, I remember, and I felt these overtures of, of fear and guilt. I had committed the unpardonable sin. I had cursed against God because I couldn't hit the ball. And I began to feel this, this splinter in my conscience um, that wouldn't go away, that I had done something so, so wrong and so evil that I began to pray and say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let me get the hand motions here. You know, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So the whole way walking home, I'm sorry, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Because I felt so um, dirty. I felt so dirty. Isn't that so much like religion, and isn't it so much like God who would put me into the profession of, of, of the administration of religion? Maybe it's my way of making atonement for that and all of my sins. Um, it's neurotic. Religion sometimes is incredibly neurotic. And you'll hear the pastor or the preacher, whether it's myself or somebody, say something, and you go home and you feel so condemned for some reason. And we, on the drive home, I'm sorry, God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm going to do better this week. I'm going to live a better week. And then we come back next Sunday and we do it all over again. And worship has this kind of sense of of heightening our guilt. And we realize that the sacrifice never is enough. That's what we're going to talk about today. On the one hand, the inadequacy of worship, the inadequacy of of the sacrifice, but then the perfection of worship. And hopefully we'll touch a, a sensitive nerve here, I hope, this morning. We start off with that first half, the inadequacy of worship. Look at verse 11. But when Christ appeared, listen carefully, as a high priest of the good things to come, 
What did he do? Christ entered through the greater and the more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. In order to worship, uh, well, I believe you can worship anywhere. I believe all of life is an act of worship. I believe uh, what we do for a living, I believe our work, our vocation is all an act of worship. But for, for the specific act of worship, you have to enter into a church building, correct? Uh, for the specific act of worship, at least on Sundays, and this is what we're talking about, ritualistics, whatever, that kind of worship, you enter in. What Jesus did was he entered into the tabernacle. His worship, his act of worship began in a place called the tabernacle. What exactly was the tabernacle? The tabernacle was literally a tent. If you've ever seen uh, the movie The Prince of Egypt or Exodus or any of that, basically what happened was after Israel left Egypt, and under the direction of Moses, they were a nomadic people, a nomadic people for 40 years. They wandered the wilderness because they wandered and because they were nomadic, they never had the chance to establish a church building. They were always renting out of somewhere, out of some school, so to speak. And because they never were able to set up an established church structure or building built of stone or mortar, they had to set up a tent for worship. And this tent would be in the center of the community and it had specific specifications that the tent had to be built a certain way so that when this tent was erected, God would descend upon it in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, and then the priest and Moses would enter in and encounter God. That's what the tabernacle was. It was a place that if you were a child growing up at that time and you saw the light descend at night and you felt this holy fear inside of yourself. And then you told your own children and they told their children about it. There was a time when God lived among us and he visited us in the tabernacle. It was a holy place. It was a place of dread, the presence of God. The priests couldn't just enter into the holy place. The priests had to wear bells on their garments and a rope tied around their waist. And if 20 minutes or however long passed and you didn't hear ding, 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 you know, the dingling of the bells, that meant he was dead, struck down, and had to be pulled out by the rope. For such a holy place, apparently, for the author of Hebrews, it was not holy enough. Listen to this. It didn't say that Jesus entered the tabernacle. It said he entered a more perfect tabernacle. Well, what are you talking about? Well, he entered a tabernacle that was, was not made by human hands, one that was more perfect. And we're like, what, what, there, there was, there was only one, what are you talking about? The tabernacle, the one that's more perfect, not of this creation. Oh, okay. You're talking about the tabernacle in the sky. And that's when we look at the author of Hebrews and we start to wonder, okay, this guy's talking about, you know, something, something, you're smoking something different here. This tabernacle he's talking about is a heavenly tabernacle. Jesus didn't enter just the tabernacle on earth. He entered a more heavenly tabernacle. This is interesting. Why does he say that? Why does the author of Hebrews say that he entered a more heavenly tabernacle? He could very much as well, he could very well have said that Jesus entered an earthly tabernacle because that's what Jesus did. If you read in the Gospels, Jesus entered the, the, the temple in Jerusalem. And when he entered, he cleansed it. He cleansed it. He cast out Anybody know? The money changers. He cast out the corruption. 
So why does the author say that he had to enter the more holy, the more perfect? He did that with the earthly tabernacle. That's sufficient. The author is emphasizing that Jesus cleansed a more perfect, a more heavenly tabernacle. And I think the reason is because the author's main concern through this entire book is the heavenly. The author is saying that there is a focus on heavenly things. How many of you have read in the news lately about, um, uh, about distant stars that are, that are flickering, the lights are flickering in a strange way so that they believe that there are planets exploding or megastructures rotating. This is the kind of stuff that really makes me interested. Um, we look in a telescope today and we can see marvelous things. We see up in the sky planets, supernovas. We found out apparently that Pluto has a blue atmosphere. Interesting things. Mars has water. And if we tried to describe this to somebody in the first century, we might say, look up in the sky, you know what's up there? And they would say, yes, the heavens. And we'd say, well, yes, but not more than, there's a vacuum, and there's no gravity, and there's um, particular molecules, and there's um, chlorophyll or carbon dioxide or whatever, right? And they would say, yes, the heavens. And we're speaking two different languages because today we have science, empiricism, observation. We look in the universe and what we see is what we've observed. And we can say out there is, is, is science. And the Asian, ancient person says, I don't get science, but I know out there is something called heaven. And I think that this is a, this is a, this is a significant, this is a significant um, understanding because in this day and age, well, I like the way C.S. Lewis says it. C.S. Lewis once said, what we need is a change from the conception of space to the conception of heaven. In other words, we look up at the sky, we don't see God anymore. We look up at the sky, we don't see heaven anymore. We look up at the sky, we don't see the spiritual anymore. Instead, what we see is what we observe. We see science and therefore, because that's all we see, we no longer see heaven. And because we no longer see heaven, we no longer have ethics. A society that has lost the notion of heaven is beginning to lose its bearings on everything. And the author is calling us back. Look, not just at the earthly church. Look at the, heaven, look at the heavenlies as well. Everything on earth is imperfect. Everything here, everything that we do, even on the most intimate moments of worship, it lifts our souls, but we are imperfect creatures. But the heavenly is perfect. Christ perfected the heavenlies. I think the author is talking about the heavenlies. If I could just hang with me here, I think this will get a little bit interesting. I think the author is talking about the heavenlies because that's what people at that time talked about. Galileo wasn't alive yet. We didn't know that the earth was round yet at that time. So at that time, all they knew was that God is out there in the heavens, something that we're not as clearly aware of. In fact, one of the philosophers of the time would describe it in a story about a cave. Listen to this. This is a great story. I think it describes this notion of the heavens and about the spiritual, the spiritual. This philosopher would talk about how all of life 
It's like all of us are chained to the inside of a cave wall. We're inside this cave and we're chained to this wall ever since we were born. In fact, we've known nothing else except facing this wall. But this cave, it's not cavernous, it's deep. It has twists and turns. And somewhere around the bend over there, every night somebody turns on a fire, somebody lights a fire. We've never actually seen the fire with its intensity and its burning, but we've seen the shadows. Around the bend, I can't see the fire. This is about as far as I can go. This is as far as my chains let me. But every time at the same time at night, I'll see the shadow of maybe a hand in front of the fire and, and I'll look at the wall and I'll, and I'll look at the shadow and I'll say, hand, that's a hand. Or a dog will walk in front of it and I'll look at the shadow and I'll say, that's a dog. Or maybe even a person, a human being, will walk in front of the fire and we'll see the shadow and I'll say, that's a person. But one day, something happens. Liberation. Your soul is awakened. Your spirit somehow, through some shattering crisis or circumstance, powerfully enough, maybe it's an earthquake, but it breaks your chains and you finally wander deeper in and you're face-to-face encountering the warmth, the heat, the power of the real fire. You see God, and for the first time, you see people exactly as they are. For the first time, you see the hand, you see the dog, you see everything clearly. What we're talking about is spiritual awakening. And really what we're talking about is spiritual things in some ways are more real than everything we see here. Spiritual things, the heavenlies, are more real. I think the author of Hebrews is talking about this because he says in chapter 8, verse 5, he says the experience of worship, it's, it's a copy. It's a shadow. He uses that same idea. It's a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. All we do on this earth, it's a copy and a shadow. In fact, Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. God said, when you set up this tent, see that you do all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Do everything according to the pattern. In other words, the heavenly model, the heavenly form, not only is it real, it's more real than we know. Now, I'm not here this morning to teach you philosophy. I'm here to bring this home and hopefully make it intensely practical. Because sometimes it seems like all that we do in religion, we show up, we sit down, we stand up, we clap, we do this, we make our sacrifice, whatever the, however that looks like. Somehow we hope that we'll live better this week. We come back, we do it again, and we begin to wonder, is this irrelevant? Is this boring? I, for one, believe that our spiritual lives many times are just staring at the shadows on the wall. And there are moments of brilliance where we're released and liberated and we're able to get a little bit closer to the heat of the fire, where we're able to see things as they really are, where we're able to see people not just as shadows, but we're able to understand this is a human being to love that person, to be loved, to know and be known. In other words, here are two reflections, if I can make this a little practical. 
the first reflection, the fill in the blank. What step of faith, what spiritual practice do I need today to break free? What step of faith, what spiritual practice, and I'm not just talking about more ritualistic or doing things by rote. What personal thing do I need? Is it confession? Do I need counsel or counseling? Do I need help or some kind of... um, do, do I need some kind of a spiritual discipline that will enable? What do I need in order, in order to move away from my, my fixation on temporal things? What do I need in order to, to break away from the, the materialistic addictions that I have? This past week, I spent a little bit more time <laughs> um, eating unhealthy than I typically do. And uh, I wonder if, 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 if uh, you know, that sometimes that, that need to just kind of consume more, um, this materialistic obsession. Anyway, whether that helps or not. But what step of faith, what spiritual practice do I need in order to, to break, break free from the, chain, from the cave wall? I do think, I, I am of the opinion, you can't just do this church thing you can't just do the ritualistic, you know, because worship is inadequate. We need acts of liberation. You and I need, we need certain spiritual practices, whether it's fasting or a certain type of prayer or a certain type of confession or a certain type of spiritual guidance. I really, really think we all need that so that we might be even more free. The turnaround reflection is what is keeping me chained to the cave wall? What is it that is keeping me chained to the cave wall? So I am so entertained, so entertained by those shadows. I love what I'm seeing there. I love that hand. I love that dog. I love that person. And much of life really ironically is like that. And yet we have still not yet seen what, what being human really is. What loving another person, what selflessness, what God's heat and fire is really about. What is it that we can do or what do we need? What do I need today? Really reflect on that. Um, for myself, I've found that I've felt a little bit more chained lately to my own fears, to my own discouragements, to my own weaknesses and for me, I've applied this. I've had to start uh, an intentional practice of spiritual direction in order for me to be free. Because I, lately, I love watching the shadows. I love watching the shadows eat a bag of potato chips, one potato chip, two potato, whole bag of potato chips, chase it down with a liter of Coke or something. And I've been finding that even for myself, I, I need a, the spiritual practice of, of a guide of someone to teach me how to live in the now, of someone that helps me to work through my frustrations, my fears, my discouragements in order to break through, in order to see more clearly. It's very helpful and it's been very helpful. As your pastor, I'm here also for that. I know sometimes it's hard to talk about your life with the pastor, but where else will you find a spiritual director? 
our woven groups, have, at least my woven group, the things we've been talking about have been very intimate, growing more and more. And in those conversations, I think we're finding liberation. Let's move on. Um, in verse 12, not through the blood of goats and calves. Do you see verse 12? Not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, Jesus entered this holy place, this tabernacle. He entered once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. In Korean culture, uh, it's customary to, if you're visiting somebody's home, to bring something. What we say is you don't want to show up with pin, pinson. Pinson literally means empty hands. So Jesus couldn't enter into this tabernacle with empty hands. A priest cannot enter into the tabernacle with empty hands. I mean, I don't think this is how it really is, but maybe God might say, well, what'd you bring? Empty hands, okay. You know, it's not really like that. Um, in the same way, the priest had to enter with a sacrifice. In Jesus' case, he showed up at the door. Well, what do you got for me? The sacrifice. Where's the sacrifice? Right here. Right here. So he was a more heavenly sacrifice. So the priests, they had to enter with, not, they could not enter with empty hands. They had to bring something. And when they brought it, they had to say, sorry, buddy, you know, and then flip the lamb around and, and blood. Imagine coming to church on your best Sunday, your best white dress or your white pressed shirt, perfect. And you enter and it's like the walking dead up in here. The sacrifice and it's squirting up and oh gosh. And the white dress is ruined and you're not done just yet. You got to go into the Holy of Holies. But before you get there, yet another sacrifice. And there goes your white dress. And then yet even deeper, and it's like you're running through a gauntlet of blood. You're supposed to get splashed. You're not supposed to wear your Sunday best. You're going to get blood. Blood was a necessity of sacrificial religion. Why? Because every time the blood sprinkled on you, it was justice being done. It was a way of saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Here's some blood to prove how sorry I am. I'm so sorry. This blood cost me a lot. This bull was 10,000 shekels. That's how sorry I am, God. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, God, I'm so sorry. And the blood is flying left and right. And I think the question more so is not why blood. The question is when, when, when is it enough blood? When is it enough blood? When have I spilled enough blood? I'm doing this Sunday after Sunday. I've been shedding a lot of blood. When is it enough? Really, I think never. If, if you're a human like me, we all know that it's never enough blood. A conscience never fully rests. It reminds me of the story of Lady Macbeth. If you've ever heard of, if you've ever been, from, if you've ever read that play, where after killing King Duncan, is that right? Was it King Duncan? After killing the king, so that she and her husband might ascend to power. She saw the blood on her hands and planted the knives on the sleeping guards, but walked away, messed up, ruined, her conscience seared by what she had done. And she washed the blood off. But for days later, waking up in the middle of her sleep, covered with blood, and there's this one riveting scene in the play where, where, where Lady Macbeth, 
she's clean. She's washed all the blood off, and yet she's sleepwalking, and she's running to a sink. <sighs> out, damned spot, out. Here's the smell of blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia can't wash this little hand. Her conscience is seared. She can't wash the blood off of her hands. The blood is not enough. And sometimes church feels like that. Sometimes religion feels like that, where we come week after week, we hope we'll get it right this time. We're washing, washing the stains off, and yet like Lady Macbeth, we're, we're, we're saying, it's still there. The blood is still there. The splinter is still in my conscience. I can't seem to get clean again. This is the inadequacy of worship. But this leads to the second and last heading, the perfection of worship. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13 to 14. There's hope. There's good news. Worship is perfected. How? Let's read these two verses. I'll read it again. For the blood, if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will it cleanse consciences, cleanse consciences from dead works to serve the living God? How does this perfect worship? This perfects worship in two ways. This perfects worship, this perfects consciences. The first way, the first way is a heavenly sacrifice was required to cleanse heavenly things. Now, I don't think that helps right away, but let me explain it. Remember I told you about how Jesus knocked on the door. He says, I'm here. I'm ready to enter the temple. Where's your sacrifice? I'm the sacrifice. This messes up the religious system completely. I wish you could know how much this disrupts my line of business. If you could just come to me and I could just say, your sins have been forgiven, right? And then, you know, say this many prayers, you know, and I'll sprinkle you with some water and you'll walk out and you'll feel good. This disrupts religion entirely because now through Christ, personally, you have a clean conscience. You have the forgiveness, forgiveness of sins. The religious system is completely disrupted. It's almost like, it's almost like if I can use a pop culture analogy, Keanu Reeves having to enter into the matrix, having to enter into the source. If you want to understand what that means, it's very philosophical. Why did he have to enter into the source? Why did the, the oracle and the people and, and Morpheus prophesy, he will enter the source? What does that mean? What that means in a sense is that Jesus enters the heavenly tabernacle and he doesn't sacrifice yet another bull or yet another or make another tithe, or do this many Hail Marys. What he does is he offers himself to atone between the cold machine world and humanity. He intercedes, he gets in the middle, and he himself says, stop. It stops with me. Brothers and sisters, are you laden down by something? Look hard at Christ. And if you're having a hard time looking at Christ, do something 
acquire some spiritual practice, some habit of prayer, meditation, counseling, um, memorization, whatever, to break away from the wall so that you can see Christ more clearly and what He's done for you. Christ, who Himself entered the source, entered the, temp- the, the, the source, the, the heavenly tabernacle, bringing empty hands, no, not an empty hands, bringing all of Himself. See Him, friends, see Him and what He's done for you. And the second reason that this perfects worship, the second reason it perfects worship is this. Read that last verse carefully. What does it say? That last verse 14, if you can pull that up, you notice that it does not say that He cleansed our consciences from bad works, bad habits, bad things. It doesn't say that. What does it say? Our consciences are cleansed from dead works. Dead works. In other words, the good things that we do in order to please God. The good things that we do, the religious activities, the religious behaviors, the good things that we do somehow to win favor from God. Somebody shared in my woven group, I think, hit the mark So much of our lives, somehow, we're trying to make God happy. Somehow, we're trying to do something so that we can pay off something or we can atone. Somehow, we're trying to get ourselves in good graces, in good favor with God. Somehow, we've been repeating over and over again, somehow in our lives, simply saying, sorry, 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 this time I'll be good. Sorry, 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 this time I'll be good. Dead works. Dead works are all the good things we do many times. When in fact, He's freed us from those things to just be. He's freed us from all of those things to simply be. Hopefully this application helps. It helps me. The fill in the blank is simply just say, I can't. He can. I think I'll let him. Or let's put it in the, in the second person instead of the third. Just simply say, I can't. I really can't. You can. I think I'll let you. Friends, this is, this is my prescription for this Sunday. Pray that a million times a day or just twice or once if you have to. But take that prayer. I'm going to take this prayer with me. And to say, ever so often, I can't, you can, I think I'll let you. You know, there was a, there were two Christians. One Christian asked the, one person asked the other person, are you a Christian? And the other person said, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. To which the response was, then you don't get it yet. Religion is trying. Christ is is accepting. Christ is being. Christ is, is it's letting Him rule and reign in our lives and surrendering to that. I'll close with this. Another theologian once said, I will not work my soul to save for that my God has done, but I will work like any slave for love of God's own Son. 
That was J.I. Packer, or J.I. Packer quoting somebody else. I will not work my soul to save, for that my God has done. But I will work like any slave for love of God's own Son. We can close our eyes. I'll give you one last verse just to listen to and meditate on. That verse is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. What I will do is I will read it once and allow you to meditate on it. I'll read it twice after a few seconds again. And then I'll read it a third time. But let your heart and your mind rest on this verse. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Let us draw near with a true heart, full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience God we can't you can and we'll let you this week help us Lord to be a more surrendered people Help us to be a more trusting people. Help us to be a more honest people. Give us what we need today, this week, not just to go through the ritualistic behaviors of religion, but to transcend that so that we might be pulled away from the shackles and to see you more clearly, to see others more clearly, to see our work, our vocations more clearly, to see our calling, our life, our purpose more clearly. As we see these, help us to live in the now. Teach us what that means. Lord, we surrender ourselves to you today. We thank you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.